It's a, quite an important passage. It's also reasonably long, but not uh, by any means uh, boring. It's full of massive truth. And I feel the reading of God's word has a power in itself. So I'm going to read in a moment from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 17, and I'm going to finish at chapter 2, verse 5. And uh, as I say, there's a, there's a truth in there that's full of truth. And I, I want it almost to speak for itself. The public reading of God's word is an important part of what we do when we come together and has been for 2,000 years. Uh, indeed, when these letters were first written, they probably were publicly read. That's the way people, a lot of people couldn't read uh, and they didn't have printing. So that's the way people heard it as it was read out to them. Um, it's quite useful to remember that sometimes because that's, that, that's something of the power of it, the word spoken. So we're going to cut in in a funny way on, an, on, a, on a run of what Paul's saying. We're going to look at, uh, in a moment, we're going to read verse 17. I want to just quickly say what our subject is so that it'll make sense of the reading. It's the power of the cross and it's in the series we're doing on power for you. And Paul has just been making clear that it doesn't matter who baptizes you. The Corinthians had many problems, and one of them, many things he's trying to put right, one of them was they were really into who, you know, who's who. You know, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of this, I'm that. Who baptized you? Who baptized you? Really, really unhelpful worldly attitude, uh, name dropping and all the rest of it. And Paul isn't interested, and he's cutting across that in verse 17. So let's read from there. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Father, I just pray that as we look into this amazing passage and some of the truths in it, holy, I pray you send your Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, to open our eyes to the glorious truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that your power will be manifest this morning among us. I pray people will be delivered from demonic bondages, set free from condemnation. I pray fear will go in the name of Jesus. I pray there'll be peace where there once was trouble. I pray, Lord, for healing, physical, emotional, spiritual healing to come. As we read your word, as we sing, as we take bread and wine. I pray, Lord, if anyone here this morning doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, doesn't have the hope of the cross and the joy of it and the freedom of it, bring it to them this morning, Spirit of God. Open their eyes. Open their ears. May they receive your grace. I pray, Lord, that every one of us will be changed through being here this morning. This will not be just a, we came, we did something, went home, a formality. But, Lord, you would meet us. There will be life-changing impact in our lives. We thank you that the, your cross has not lost its ancient power. And we receive it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's great subject to talk about and not overawing really I'm going to talk about the power of the cross as best I can let's get the little context here because it's always very helpful and it's very relevant to us the Corinthian Christians had an unhealthy admiration for worldly wisdom there was a lot of wisdom in Corinth Corinth was a city that had, uh, well, actually it was destroyed a hundred years earlier than this. It had grown up in a hundred years, quite quick really, and it was a buzzy place. It was the second city of Greece. It was where they had the other uh, major games, the Olympic Games, the Isthmus Games were at Corinth. And it was big, with slaves as well. It was probably half a million people at least, uh, 200,000 free people and probably 400,000 slaves. And it was a big community. It was cosmopolitan. It was port, an important seaport, two ports that were a very important key trade route. And there were a lot of different cultures there, a lot of different religions in Corinth. We Archaeologists have found the remains of 26 different temples for different religions. So at least 26 religions. Some of the massive temples... They were very overt, some of them, in a promiscuous lifestyle. It was a huge temple to Venus, which was, uh, had massive number of prostitutes. It was heterosexual focus. It was very, very promiscuous, and there were lots of erotic statues and things and pictures on the wall. There was a huge temple, equally big to Apollos, which was dedicated to homosexuality, erotica, and it had also prostitutes, but all mostly uh, male prostitutes. And it was, it was absolutely no way shame about it. It was right up there. They were on high spots in the city. They were dominating. And there were lots of other religions as well. And behind it all, there were two uh, major things, if you like. One was uh, a pride in the Greek culture, 
which was what was the worldview that influenced intellect, and that was based on reason and logic. And there was a way you spoke, there was a way you argued, which is touched on here with eloquence. This is if you're clever and sensible, you speak a certain way, you use certain language, you, you don't really worry about what's true, you want to put it right and make it sound nice and acceptable and clever. That was one aspect. And then, of course, overall, there was the Roman world. The Romans were, let the Greeks uh, dominate the intellectual world, but they dominated the world of law and order and commerce and everything else. And the Romans set the rules for everybody. And to keep everybody in place, the Roman emperor was seen as the god uh, uh, who you had to worship. So you could do all sorts of other things under here, under his umbrella, but basically you always had to make sure that the emperor was treated as the top dog, the god. And so there was this culture which was full of plurality of religion. It was extremely permissive. It was multicultural. There was, as I say, a, a notorious promiscuity to the city, which was well known in the first century. It was wealthy. It was up and coming. It was a buzzy place. And uh, it was dominated by a number of things that we wouldn't find totally unfamiliar to us. It may be nearly 2,000 years ago, but there's a resonance, and you don't take long, I hope, to work that out, between our 21st century culture, particularly in the West here and in Britain, and the sort of culture that the Corinthians had come out of. Now, they'd been saved and uh, come into the kingdom of God, but they were struggling with some of the aspects of their Christian faith in contrast to the culture around them. And many of the Corinthian Christians in the church were uncomfortable with things that seemed a bit humiliating and crude and a bit awkward, such as the message of, a cro of the cross, a saviour who died a nasty death on a cross. We'll come back to that in a moment. And also the very obvious clunky way, perhaps, they felt Paul preached it, felt there wasn't all the nice language that should have been around it, made it acceptable, there wasn't a, an emphasis on eloquence and the right words that the Greeks would have found, oh yeah, we can listen to that. It was a bit crude and bald and it was, it was blunt and it was messy and they weren't that keen on keeping that going. So although they'd been saved, and I think they genuinely were, many of them wanted to move on to higher things. They wanted to actually be a bit more smart. They'd like church to be a bit more intelligent and smart and a bit more in harmony with the culture, a bit like less ignorant looking, a bit less stupid looking, a bit less crude and just for slaves and all the things that might have, that might have the, the, the culture might have mocked them for. You know, uh, you know and, and it was awkward. And they'd rather look smart and intelligent. They didn't like looking foolish. Does that sound familiar to you? I think it's very real to our world. I think it's very real. I think the culture of Corinth at that time was remarkably similar to ours. I don't know how much I even need to spell it out. Pluralistic, multicultural, tolerating, actually, all these religions, provided you don't question the two big overarching things. The Greek outlook on philosophy and thinking, the, the sort of reason, logic, uh, everything has to submit to that. And the Roman law and order backed up by the emperor is above all. His law rules over all laws. I don't think that's so different to us. We do have toleration of religion, but it's under the overarching controlling philosophy of our culture, which is secular humanism scientific rationalism 
and of course religious pluralism that all religions are basically the same and they all tell us something about God. And those overarching views are very, very dominant in our culture. And it is very difficult for Christians to say things that clash with them because we do. In the first century, what Christians believed and taught clashed with those overarching views of the first century, brought them into conflict with their culture. And I want to tell you, real Christianity will bring you into conflict with modern British culture, 21st century. And I don't despise people who want to make the gospel attractive and missional. I'm all for it. I love it. And I'm happy. I don't want to be weird. I'm, I'm sorry if you think I am weird, but I don't want to be weird and, and odd and, you know, look superficially stupid and stuff like that. But the actual message cannot be cut down to size, given all sorts of words to make it sound attractive to modern ears, made so politically correct that it loses any edge and any cutting edge to it. And that was the sort of battle they had. It's the sort of battle we have. We are tolerated provided we will play the game that the big culture wants, provided we don't question those things, provided we don't try and come with a different view to those things we said. If we start saying Jesus is the only way, that's awkward. We start bigging up on the cross, which we're going to do this morning, that can be awkward. Start talking about sin, that can be awkward. And I know sometimes people say, oh yeah, but the words, yeah, I don't mind words that help people to understand sin, and I don't mind spelling it out, but I don't want to airbrush it out, or the cross, and, I, and we're not going to use just the culture's phrases to make it all sound acceptable, but it doesn't any longer mean much, which I do think can happen. And so we need to be careful because that's what was happening here. And we can therefore empathize with the battle Paul's got and his passion to keep clear on what the gospel is. I understand. I feel the same. We don't like to feel stupid. We don't like people to think that we're old-fashioned, that we're intolerant, that we're uneducated, that we don't understand what's all now been discovered, that we're rather sad and backward. It's not very nice to be thought of like that, is it? But you may sometimes be thought of like that. I cannot soften the blow. You don't have to deliberately go out to welcome that, but people will not think you're cool and contemporary if you really believe the gospel of the cross and all it means, and you live it and you speak about it, it doesn't always fit easily to modern ears, no more than it did to the ears of the Corinthian culture. Paul is determined not to cave in to the cultural norms that the Corinthians are quickly trying to absorb and, and, and adjust to. This is a battle he feels he must fight why must he fight it? Because if you take the edge off the cross, you lose Christianity together, altogether. If you take away from the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did in his death and resurrection, you lose the whole thing. So you can't do it. You can't do it because you don't. It's not just another religion with another way of doing it. They do that. Not, not, this is what our culture would like to tell us. Somebody used this analogy. Our culture 
in modern Britain, it's like the big top is the stuff I talked about, secular humanism, scientific rationalism. That's the big top. And all, all religions are little sideshows around the big top. And they'll be tolerated as sideshows. Little things you can go and amuse. You can go try that one, that one, that one. But this is the big top. This is where the serious stuff happens. This is where the truth is. And, or if they believe in truth, which they often don't. This is where the, it all happens. And you go, and Christianity is another little sideshow. No, it's not. They can put it in a box. We have the only answer to the needs of our culture, our society, and individuals in it. I would love that every single person in this country, from Prince Harry and Meghan, whatever she name is, is getting married next week, <laughs> right down to the street sleepers, every colour, every race, every Muslim, every Jew, every Hindu, I would love them all to come to know Jesus as their saviour. Unashamedly, unashamedly, to know what the cross means for every Muslim, every Jew, every Hindu, every atheist, every secularist, every class and every type. Amen? Amen. It is the answer. It is the truth. The gospel, the gospel of the cross has amazing power, but it stands in absolute, uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. Okay? It has amazing power, but it stands in contradiction to human wisdom. Let's talk about wisdom. We're going to talk about two things, wisdom and power. Let's talk about wisdom for a minute, because that's a word Paul uses a lot here. The bottom line is that the gospel of the cross is never going to seem clever and respectable. Now, just accept that. The real gospel of the cross is never going to seem clever and acceptable to human wisdom, whatever culture it is. It just doesn't. In fact, it's the wonder of the cross. One of the wonders of it is that you realize no human being could have thought up the gospel. Because any natural man or woman, pretty well from any culture, and the more educated, the more true it is almost, would not have come up with the idea of the cross. It's a God idea. It's got to be a God plan. It just doesn't make sense because to human wisdom, there's always a problem. It could be the Jews, one problem, the, Je the Greeks, another problem, as Paul referred. But that's just symbolic of all sorts of groups. It's always got a problem. What, how would do that? How could you? Because the actual message is so humiliating and preposterous about God. Do you realize that the, the cross is humiliating and preposterous? You say God became a man, a baby, fully God, fully man. He grew up and was subject to his parents in a very ordinary household, in a very ordinary place, in a tiny Middle, Middle Eastern country, which was not that important in the first century. He did ordinary things. He was a carpenter for 30 years, and, and he, he was just that. He wasn't a, a trained in a theological college. He didn't, he didn't come out the top drawer or the bottom drawer, to be honest. He was just ordinary. And then, at the age of 30, he goes around doing extraordinary things, healings, deliverances, incredible things, amazing teaching that anybody would acknowledge and still do is amazing but actually he 
pretty well implied that wasn't the most important thing he'd come to do. It had a value, and of course it does, but his most important task came when he was 33. What was it? It was to be handed over or give himself over to a horrible kangaroo court, a mixture of Jewish uh, prejudice against what he was saying, Messiah, Roman cynicism and power, and all sorts of other people involved to be abused physically. This was the main reason he came, to go through all the agonies of a, a false trial and, a, and virtual torture, really, of, of the whippings, then to be crucified. And to be crucified, we don't really understand it. You're saying God was crucified the first century. We've had 2,000 years of gold crosses with diamonds and funny little crosses you put around your neck and tattoo them and all the rest of it. The cross was hideous. Hideous. First century, they all knew it. Nobody, nobody like the cross. The Jews thought you were cursed if you were hung on a cross. The Greeks and the Romans, the Roman, a Roman citizen would not be crucified. It was so gross and unpleasant a way to die. That's why the Apostle Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. Later, Peter was crucified because he wasn't. They, owned, they never crucified Roman citizens. Why? Because it's so grim. It's painful. It's one of the worst, cruelest, and most horrible ways to die invented. You're naked. You're in agony for hours. You're dying by sort of choking on your own. Uh, you dry, I don't know. It's weird. It's horrible. It's cruel. It's demonic. And, and that, But you're telling me, they would say, people say, that this God died that cross and his father chose it that way he chose it he chose the cross he submitted to it he went through with it utterly utterly conscious of what he was doing and you are saying God was crucified in effect God the unique son of God was crucified second person in the trinity and then you top it off by saying three days later he rose physically from the dead physically rose with a new body but the same body renewed physical could eat could talk, had the wounds there, but could just move around through the spiritual dimensions and appear, but was physically, solidly there. And the final ludicrous thing that the first century and the 21st century wisdom of men struggles with is that we claim this whole demeaning process is absolutely essential for any human being to know God. And without it, you have no hope of knowing God. I don't care who you are. You can be from any religion in the world. You can be from the highest or the lowest echelons of society. If you don't come via Christ, Jesus' death and resurrection, you have no hope of a personal knowledge of God. No hope. You can be as religious as you like. You can follow all the rules of your religion absolutely thoroughly for years you will not know God without Jesus he is the one way to God and the way is through his death and resurrection that is the truth and there is no wriggle room in it amen, amen. now that is what Paul knew it's what we know then that is why he was teaching it. Now, why is that the only way? Let's briefly remind you. It's the only way because all of us, and I mean all of us, I mean me as well, all of us are so broken and scarred by sin, so dull and dead spiritually, so flawed that we cannot 
come to a holy God without our sin problem being dealt with. And we can't deal with it. Yes, we do do good things. Yes, we do uh, not always do evil things. But everything is tainted and marred. Everything, every, we always like leave smears of sin everywhere. Like our hands are dirty, you know. So we do a good deed, but there's a lot of pride in there and selfishness. And then sometimes it gets worse and worse. And there's all, why is the world so sick? Why, why do so many awful things happen? Well, fundamentally, the human heart's sin is sick with sin. The individuals are, all of us. Now, it varies in degree. We all need a solution that's much deeper than a few new laws and a few new ideas about how to live nicely. That's been tried for 2,000, well, longer than that. Doesn't, it does sort of moderate things, but it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. The problem has much deeper, and that's why Jesus had to die. He bore my sins in his body on the cross. Hallelujah. He bore yours as well. You can say, he bore all my judgment, all my sin, all my sorrows, all my griefs, all the, the, the wrath of God against my sin, all the holy judgment of God. You can put it all sorts of ways. It's what the Bible does. But it all poured down on him on the cross. He died for me. And so when he died and risen again, as I put faith in him, I can be changed. I can be saved. I can be taken out of darkness into light. I can have my sins completely forgiven. It's wonderful. It's how it works. I can come to know God. I can come to know God. How do I do it? How do I do it? What do I have to do? Do you know, I read this week, I was reading C.H. Spurgeon. I read in the morning sometimes with a Bible. I like to read uh, just something good. And I'm reading through some Spurgeon sermons. And I don't know if I'm quoting him right, but there's a, a little thought in there that I thought, oh, that's so true. He said, the main difficulty with the gospel is there is no difficulty. So, you know, the thing people struggle with, there's no difficulty becoming a Christian. That is one of the main difficulties. Because it can't be as simple as that. It is as simple as that. And that defies human wisdom. That's another problem with the human wisdom because there's pride in there. It is as simple as you put faith in what Jesus did. That's all you can do. And Jesus made it very clear himself on a number of times. I've got one illustration comes to mind as I speak I don't want to confuse you but there was an ins- he talked about as, the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert so the son of man will be lifted up meaning the cross that all who'd look to him and believe would be saved now if you don't understand the instant please don't worry don't lose me on it but, but for those of you who've got half a clue about it it's a very vivid illustration of the simplicity of how you become a Christian which is almost bamboozingly simple because it's an illustration of a situation where the Jews were dying because snakes had bitten them and it was all part of God's judgment on their sin and their moaning and complaining. And the solution God provided, God provided the solution, notice that, was that they put a model of the snake on a stick and when they looked at it, they were immediately healed. How stupid is that? You just look at the thing. Just look. That's all you do. You're dying at this poison. You look and you're healed. And Jesus, John 3, sorry about my voice. I'm passionate about this. Jesus used it as an illustration of his cross and how you get saved through it. Have you got that? 
Do you still think you've got to be a goody-goody to be a Christian? You've still got to do this, do that. Listen to Jesus. Read it. John 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus said, it's going to be like that with me. That is actually a picture of me. That's a type. He is lifted up on a stick, horribly. He's lifted up on the cross. He becomes sin for you. What was lifted on the pole was a serpent. How weird is that? It was snakes that were killing them. And it was a model of a snake that they looked at. What did Jesus, he, bore, he became sin for you. He became the thing that was killing you. The judgment of God that was destroying you, he became it. He became a snake so that you could be delivered from the poison. Nobody but God would think of that. That's not a human construct. That's the gospel. And what do you have to do? You look at it. What? Yes, you look at it. With a look of faith. Don't I do more than that? No. As Spurgeon said, that's one of the difficulties. There is no difficulty. That's one of the difficulties people have. What is the difficulty? There's no difficulty. It's not that simple. It is that simple. That's your problem. It's too simple for you. That is the problem with human wisdom. It's too simple. And you will go to hell because it's too simple if you're not careful. Look to the cross. That's what you do. You just look and say, save me. That's what the dying thief did, hanging next to Jesus, a few hours from dying, being a criminal all his life, even was cursing Jesus, it would seem, at the beginning of the crucifixion, but somehow changed his mind as he saw something in Christ. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Didn't do anything else. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. You admit your need and you accept the free gift of what Jesus has done for you. This strange, foolish business of the crucified Christ is the ultimate expression of God's wisdom and God's power. And you have to accept it if you're going to be saved. We're left, as one writer said, with the awful risk, trust God and be saved by his wise folly or keep up our pride and pretensions and perish. Paul says, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Are you perishing or are you saved? A lot of that hangs on how you view the cross. If you think of the cross, even as I speak, if you think of the cross as something embarrassing, weird, a bit irrelevant to my daily life, not quite sure what I make of that, I think you're not yet saved. But you can be. This morning, you can be. And I'll give you an opportunity to be. Or if you want to know a bit more, come to our Alpha course. They're great opportunities. Come along next week and hear the gospel again. Hear it presented slightly differently. The same message, of course. Come and hear it again. And then come to the Alpha course. Don't perish. You don't need to perish. But if you understand, even a little bit, that the cross is amazing, it's almost, if you feel, this is almost too good to be true, but I believe it is true, then you're probably saved. Hallelujah. Messy old you. What a failure, a rubbish person, and you're saved. Sorry, I could say that about myself. I don't know who I'm talking to, really. All of you. What I'm saying is, it hinges on how do you see the cross? 
Because when you get saved, you get it suddenly. You think, oh, it's all about this. And I don't know about you, but as a Christian, many, many years, I keep coming back to the cross. That's what we're going to do this morning with the bread and wine. You don't get bored with it. In fact, it's a relief to get back to it sometimes. You get out there struggling, trying to be a good Christian, trying to do this, trying to... We all set ourselves and people set... We get all tied up in knots. Maybe you've failed or let the Lord down and this and that. You feel can come back to the cross. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you. It's not about your work. It's about his work. Just a look. Ha! Glorious. You don't have to do anything else. Hallelujah. It's outrageous. You keep coming back to the cross. If you love the cross, if you love what it means, you're saved. I don't care what sort of week you've had. We sometimes fuss about our week. Who cares about your week? It's what Jesus' week's been that I care about. What's Jesus? He's had no problems with his week. Stop worrying about your week. He's got no problems with his week. I don't care what it's like. Are you in Christ or not? You say, you're a bit unkind. I'm not unkind. This is how you live. This is how you're strong. It's the cross. It's Jesus. It's not your feelings or your ups and downs. It's Jesus. Amen? It's the cross. Hallelujah. Oh, let's put this Gordon Fee quote up. I have lost my way a bit. I think you found it. He's a commenter. I like what he said. We have, this is about the church, by the way, us Christians, the church. We have often succeeded in blunting the scandal of the cross by symbol, creed, or propositions. God will not be so easily tamed and freed from its shackles. The preaching of the cross alone has the power to set people free. Amen. We've dressed it up. We've all done it. Every denomination's done it. But actually, we've got to keep it pure and clear, the cross Let's move quickly on to the power. Here's a couple of verses that I've already read. Please pop up the 1 Corinthians 2. Thank you. For I resolved, Paul says, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Paul links two things together. It's good to understand this. He links together the preaching of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. And they are intimately linked. Intimately linked. You see, you really need the Holy Spirit's help to see the cross for what it is. But he's there to help you. He's ready. If you're open, he'll come. The light will come on. But you do need to realize you're not going to work this out with human intellect. You're not thinking, if I'm a really clever person, if I went and did theology for three years, I might understand this. No, you won't. Human wisdom isn't needed for this. You need to be open-hearted to the Spirit of God, and he will show you the Holy Spirit longing to show you Jesus, longing to show you Jesus. But also, there's another side. They're linked together because the cross and what happened on it has cleaned you up and made you a clean vessel so you can be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that good? I mean, the Holy Spirit, holy, get the name, the clue's in the name, Holy Spirit. He's not going to want to live in you, is he, or me? Messy old thing. But actually, that's changed through the cross. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So now I'm made clean and new. My spirit can be renewed. The Holy Spirit can live in me. My body can become a temple of the Holy Spirit because of the cross. 
because Jesus has borne away all my sin. So there are two things are linked together. Now, when Paul turned up at Corinth, he was pretty intimidated by the place because it is, as I said, it's a bit like turning up in London, central London, or maybe Manchester or somewhere like that, a big buzzy city with Cosmopolitan, all the rest of the things I talked about. And, and he realized that he would look rather weak and stupid with his message. Now, Paul was not a stupid man. He was a clever man. He was well-educated. He was intellectually uh, astute. And I think he was battling because he'd come to see that all those things he had from his past were rubbish and dung. But actually, he realized he knew how people would view him. It's like going to Oxford or Cambridge and trying to have a debate. And, and you know what they'll think. They'll think you're really stupid and you can't speak properly. Think, oh, this guy can't even use right. He doesn't even have, you know, he's not even worth listening to. Country bumpkin. So now he knew that's how they'd be. So I'm sure there was a temptation to, to try and talk their language, to try and up it. He's not a fool. But he resolved, he said. I resolved. I resolved. Isn't that the word he uses? He said, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He kept, he said, no, no, I'm not going to get drawn off. I'm going to keep to this. And as a result, the power of the Holy Spirit moved with the message. Now, there are two sorts of power. There's his human persuasiveness, where he joins in the debate. He uses all the right language. He uses all the politically correct terms. He uses the style, the eloquence, the things that were cool and accepted. He uses a lot of Greek references and refers to Roman poets and things, which he seemed to know, by the way, and tries that. And that's got no power. He knows he's got a resolve just to preach the cross and look for the Holy Spirit to do the work. And that's still the formula. That's still the formula. We don't have to be deliberately awkward, deliberately stupid, make it hard for people to get in because we don't even use words they understand. I, under, I know we don't do that. But in the end, we need, we need to keep clear in our heads that the power of the Holy Spirit moves with the preaching of the cross. Now, it's quite interesting. He talks about uh, demonstration of the Spirit's power. And uh, sometimes I think it's valid point. Some commentators say this was uh, possibly signs and wonders. And, and it could be, because I think with the preaching of the gospel in those days, there were signs and wonders. I think they all look for it. And we should too. But I am not sure, because actually verse 22 says Jews demand signs. And I'm not sure Paul would suddenly be saying, well, you know it was all real because of all the healings I did. I'm not sure he means that. I think he means, and some commentators say this, the power to see lives changed. You know that when I preached the cross, your lives changed. And here's an example to illustrate from 1 Corinthians 6. Could you put it up, please? 1 Corinthians 6, later on he says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at this. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think he's reminding them what changed your life. What brought the radical change? You know what you were like. 
You remember, it was the Holy Spirit coming on the back of the message of the cross. Now, I'm sure there were healings, because that comes out of the same message and deliverances. But I, I think he's not just trying to say, whoa, look at that, that was spectacular. You know, I think he's saying, you know what changed you. He's reminding them, because they've drifted from it. You know what brought the change. You were sanctified. You, I mean, these are spiritual words, but they mean you were set apart for God. That's what sanctified means. Clean, washed clean. Well, that's a beautiful phrase. It means forgiven. All that dirt and filth and confusion washed away. You were justified. That means you were made holy. Made holy by the work of the cross, by the preaching of the message. And the Holy Spirit came to make that real in your life. He actualized it as I preached it, says Paul. And that is still true. Amen? It's the cross that is the fundamental answer. So as I come towards the end, we're going to break bread. They'll have to give us 10 more minutes. I'm sure they will, the children's workers, as we break bread properly. But as we come towards the end, I want to remind you how fundamental this is. And in a way, I'm provoked. As I say this, I feel as a minister, as a preacher, I don't know what I am, a preacher of the gospel, preacher of, a teacher of the word of God. Do you know, fundamentally, this is all I've got to offer. I know we do try and help people practically, but I'm not a trained marriage counsellor. Not, I'm not a trained social worker. I'm not a doctor. I'm not expert of financial services or child welfare or psychiatric treatment. We sort of touch those things with people, but what we have got is the cross and the message of the cross. So I'm not against us helping people. Of course I'm not. We do cap and all sorts of things. But hear me, the core thing we've got to offer is the gospel of the cross. And if we lose that, and that's not central, we've got nothing. There are far better marriage counsellors out there. There are far better psychiatrists. There's far better NGOs, or whatever they call charities that feed the poor. Thank God for them. But the thing that we bring is the message of the cross. And that hits the heart of anybody's problem. I believe it. I've been preaching it and living it for nearly 40 years, 50 years in church leadership. I do care about people's practical circumstances. But I know that if they don't get this, they might as well forget it. It's just a sticking plaster. It's nice to give them a sticking plaster. It's better than not. Put some Savlon on it, a sticking plaster. But actually, for goodness sake, we want a real answer. And they need to know about Jesus. And they need the message of the cross. And that's the unique power of what the Christian gospel is. It's, it's unique to us who are believers, who, all of us, other churches as well. When we understand this, we have a precious diamond, a precious pearl that we must pass on to people. So never lose the wonder of the cross. Let's worship and let's get and take bread and wine together. So as the musicians come up, I just want to direct you. We're going to break bread for about 10 minutes. Uh, if someone could remind the children's workers that John's preaching, so they're probably psychologically ready for this. <laughs> We'd like another, I, I would like another, oh, good, that clock's behind my clock. I'll go by that one. I prefer that one. I'd like another 15 minutes till 20 to 12 because we want to take bread and wine properly because I do not want to rush this. You've got to, every one of you, I want you to respond 
meaningfully with the bread and wine this morning. And very quickly, I'm going to suggest there's three responses. There's one category. You may be someone who doesn't really get it yet. You don't understand how the cross is important to you. You haven't yet put faith in Jesus. Can I appeal to you this morning? Please ask him into your life now as we break bread. Please say, Jesus, come into my life. Save me. Look at the cross. (laughs) Just look at the serpent on the pole and say, Lord, I believe you died for me. If you can say that and mean it, don't overanalyze your feelings, but mean it, then I want you to take the bread and wine as your first Christian communion. (laughs) Take it and say, I'm taking, as you take it, say, I'm taking Jesus into my life. I'm drinking your wine, Lord, because I want your blood to cleanse me from my sins. Then when you've done that, tell someone. Go and talk to someone at Connect Desk or one of your friends. And please, can I encourage you, come on the Alpha course, because that will help you to understand a bit more what's involved as a sort of outworking of it. But you will be saved if you do that this morning. You'll have looked, and that's all you need to do. Now, the rest of us who are perhaps already Christians, why don't we start off with a gratitude in our hearts? It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. (laughs) Think of what you were when you became a Christian. Think of what you would be if you didn't know Jesus. And be grateful. Let's be grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for all you've done for me.